Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Welcome along. It is Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North, Friday, June 16th. 2023. I had the great privilege last night of attending the JCCF, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, George Jonas Freedom Awards. I've been to, I think this was my fourth one. I was there at the first one a few years back when Mark Stein was given the award. Last night, it went to none other than Jordan Peterson, who has done more, I think, to expand the base of people talking about issues of liberty and of free speech than uh, many other Canadians, though not for lack of trying, I can assure you. He just captured a few years ago this uh, perfect moment and explained some of these issues so eloquently and so passionately that he has continued on and has had this meteoric rise, but still uh, was willing to stand up there at the JCCF dinner and accept that award and give a, a tremendous talk. And I, I know some of you listening in came up and, and said that they had a, a great time and a few of you had very kind things to say about the show. So I, I thank you very much for that. And I also saw Bruce Party, who is no stranger to many of you on this program. He is a law professor at Queen's University, the executive director of Rights Probe, and also the author of a fascinating essay in C2C Journal, which has uh, become a, a very good friend and supporter of True North. The piece is called Legal Canons and Social Fables. The law in Canada has never been perfect, but now it is losing its way. And it talks about a lot of the key themes of the legal field in Canada that I think we need to tackle as a society. But before we get into that, I just want to briefly mention, uh, I think I talked about it earlier in the week on the show, the resignation slash retirement of Supreme Court Justice Russell Brown, who, if you read Supreme Court decisions, has been a often underappreciated breath of fresh air, oftentimes one of just a couple of people pushing back against these incursions on civil liberties that we see from the Supreme Court of Canada. And due to rather bizarre allegations and accusations that were uh, weak, and even if they were accepted at face value, I don't think would carry the punishment of being judicial misconduct, he has found himself uh, now no longer on the bench, another vacancy on the Supreme Court, which Justin Trudeau will get to fill, his sixth judge of nine on the bench. And what that means for the legal field and justice in Canada, we can talk about as well. But uh, we'll get to all that. Bruce Party joins me now. It's good to talk to you again, Bruce. Thanks for coming on today. Andrew, thanks for the invitation. Let's actually talk about the Russell Brown aspect uh, for a moment here before we get into it, because uh, he was very much a minority on the Supreme Court, even among justices appointed by Stephen Harper. Many of them ended up ruling against uh, liberty, against free speech in a couple of cases. Uh, what is What do you take from his ousting, if I can call it that, which I think is an accurate way of putting it? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm very sorry to see him go. He, he, I think, was uh, one of the best minds on the court uh, for, for, for the time that he was there. People call him a conservative judge, but that's not to give him enough credit. He, he was a, you know, that, that, would, that would be to pigeonhole him in, a, in an artificial way. He was a, just, a, just a, a solid judicial thinker, a, a judge who, who took his restrained role seriously in the sense that the, 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 the two traditions, the two competing traditions are, you know, judges 
do policy and they do what they think is right and they interpret the constitution as a living tree and so on. And the other philosophy is, no, judges are there to do a restrained job. They apply the law as it's written, they interpret the text. And sure, sometimes there's ambiguity in the text, but we're supposed to be doing a judicial role so that this idea of separation of powers is reserved. And 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 Brown was 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 extremely good at understanding that philosophy and applying it. Um, and so we we owe him a, a great debt on the court uh, for his time on the court. He he contributed uh, far beyond the the time that he had available on it, both both in this in dissent and he dissented uh, with with great courage. But also he managed to to persuade his colleagues to follow him sometimes in creating a judgment that was the majority and a, and a good one. So it's it's a great law. And then you look moving forward at one more vacancy. There is no convention in Canada where you try to replace someone with someone who's going to think in a very similar way. And, you know, we look at the appointments that Justin Trudeau has uh, made or recommended to the bench. And, and there are people who and I, I know you're in a law society, so you're not allowed to speak ill of other lawyers. I can, but I'll uh, spare you having to uh, uh, listen to it for now. But but they have not been the best picks, I would say. I, I well, from from from. For my money, for the kind of of jurist that I would favor having on the court, someone, frankly, with 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 Brown's approach and 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 features in terms of his judicial philosophy, I completely agree. And and the likelihood that we will get somebody like that next time, I, don't put your money on it. Are, are are you available? By the way, I I can start a letter writing campaign. Bruce Party for the Supreme Court. Sure, sure. Okay, I, I, good. I'm Everyone, sure. Bruce Party for the Supreme Court dot com. We'll uh, set it up. I'm sure I'm at the top of Trudeau's list. Sure. <laughs> if, if called upon, you will serve. Well, I let, let's segue from there into the bigger picture aspects here. And and you and I have often had conversations about a variety of issues on on this show and and off air. And uh, the problem is, as much as I enjoy talking to you, I always end up very depressed uh, after we had a conversation because you take a very cynical view of things and I, and I don't think you can be faulted for that because you look around and there's great reason for cynicism. I mean, uh, one of the big uh, victories on the Supreme Court in the last couple of years in Canada was the Mike Ward case, which was the uh, free speech case involving a Quebec comedian. But that was a victory by one vote. It was one single judge. Uh, and that judge was, quite frankly, Russell Brown, you could say. 5-4 uh, yeah. that stood up for something that should have been plain as day, so fundamentally simple and easy to adjudicate. So what is the problem? Is the problem that we have a, a set of judges in this country that are not oriented around liberty and around free speech and around that strict originalist view of the charter or is the problem the law itself, that there's something fundamentally structurally wrong in the Canadian legal system? Well, I, I think both. We've, so our legal system has worked for a, a good long time. You know, it's as, it's as good, for periods it's been as good as anything that we've ever seen in the world. But it is based upon a couple of ideas that work as long as you have people inside the system that believe a certain thing and, and, and act in a certain way. And one of those things is restraint, judicial restraint, you know, keeping to your knitting, staying in your wheelhouse. Um, but we are getting now to the stage where 
that that restraint is well not been there for for a good while and if you look at the very basic premises of the system you have two at least two i mean more than two but here's let's here here are just two basic ideas legislatures are supreme in the sense that they can pass anything they want like literally anything if you can write it down they can pass it and people think well hold on wait a minute what about the charter the charter is not the foundation of the legal system the foundation is legislative supremacy they can do anything they want except those things that the court says are unconstitutional now we say all right well we got a constitution it's written down in black and white so that's the restraint well yes except that that document has to be interpreted by the court and the court can say it means whatever it likes now that's not the theory you're not supposed to do that but in fact the court's power to interpret the constitution is essentially unrestrained so you have two institutions that are essentially unrestrained and that works for as long as it works but when it starts to not work because the people involved think well it's our job to do what we think is right now you're going to start to get into problems and and in my opinion that's where we're at I, I know that there was, I think it was, uh, what, 26 years ago now, the, the famous charter dialogue uh, doctrine that started to emerge that, you know, there's this dialogue between the courts and, and parliament, you know, parliament puts forward a bill, the court kicks it back, and eventually we perhaps make everyone happy. But I, I think the flaw with that, as we see over time, is that someone has to have a veto at a certain point when the court wants one thing and uh, elected officials want another thing, someone is going to have to win out. And uh, Beverly McLaughlin infamously said in, in one decision, I, I can't remember what case it was, that, you know, the parliament doesn't get to, it's not a case of if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. So she basically thought the Supreme Court should be the final authority on things. And, and I'm curious if you think that will hold, that the court will be the ones that get the final say and not democracy itself, not elected officials. Well, that's the way it's, it's set up to work right now, you know, mm -hmm. given, given the constitution and the charter, uh, with respect to those matters that come before it on constitutional grounds, instead of legislative supremacy, we have judicial supremacy. And if I, you know, when I, when the Supreme court makes a final ruling, if, you know, the government doesn't like it, there is nothing they can do, nothing they can do about it. Uh, so in that sense, we do actually have the last word sitting with the court. Now, as I, as I say, that that system worked for a good while. And well, when the court keeps its own purview constrained, and I guess that's the issue, not when they start expanding, expanding, expanding rather. Well, right. Except that we are we are talking about this through our own lens. And if you talk to somebody with a different view, they would say, well, they are doing their jobs, you know, they're the job of the Supreme Court is to do, is to be the final arbiter of which social values will prevail. Those are Rosa, Rosalia Bella's words. Um, so so this is a this is a, a a dispute about what the proper role of the court actually is. I mean, and keep in mind, this is not just a view held by the court or its supporters. This is also a view held, frankly, by a lot of legislators. So one time I was giving evidence before a Senate committee and there was some dispute about the content of the bill. And one of the senators asked, well, why don't we just pass the bill and then send it to the court and have them work it out? And I said, well, but you're the legislator. You, you should at least say what it is that you want the bill to mean instead of 
avoiding the question and then just fobbing it off onto the court. But but that's the mentality that that we that a lot of people have in this country now that the Supreme Court ought to be the final arbiter because you know they're not political, they're not elected, they're you know nine wise people sitting up there on the bench, so they must know what they're doing. Well, they're just ordinary people. They're just lawyers who've been appointed. They're political appointments, frankly, all of them. And uh, do you really want those nine unelected people being the final arbiter of what the law is in the country? That's more or less what we have right now. There was an interview years ago that Beverly McLaughlin, the former Supreme Court Chief Justice, gave in which she said that, you know, her job was to, you know, hear the facts, hear the evidence, and then, uh, you know, go back and decide. And her exact words were what is, quote, best for society, unquote. Sure. And And if you're not keenly astute on these things that may sound like a perfectly reasonable thing of well absolutely we want society to be, be bettered through the legal system but but in actuality what she was describing is exactly what you're discussing there which is uh, a court that wants to not just choose what is legal but what is optimal and that is not the job i mean a, a court should be in my view upholding a very bad ineffective policy if that policy complies with the constitution Many, many years ago, I happened to be at a, some kind of a, uh, a law school banquet when I was a, a law student, and I happened to end up sitting beside uh, Madam Justice Lear DeBay. And I had opportunity to ask her while we were chatting, uh, you know, what, what the most important thing, I was just a law student, I forget what year I was in, but it was very, very early on. I was just interested. I, what, what, what is the most important thing that you consider when you're making a decision? And, and to my surprise, because I was very green, she said, uh, the, the policy, you know, I, I, my job, and I don't, don't want to put words in her mouth, but essentially she said, I regard my job as to, is to choose the right policy. And I was astounded because the, the learning with the little learning that I had done so far in law school basically said, you know, you take the law and you find the facts and then you put those two things together. And those two things will tell you what the answer is supposed to be. So that was uh, a, a, a new idea for me, but it turns out to be a, a prevailing one. In your uh, C2C piece, which again, I, I think people should definitely read, you, you have a number of these fables that you say, the, the suppositions of the, uh, of the legal system, which of course you, you then debunk. And one of them that I wanted to ask you about, which I think is particularly timely with all of the COVID challenges we've seen over the last few years and, and will continue to see for the next couple, fable, court find, courts find facts with evidence. Explain what you're talking about there. Yes, well, so during COVID, uh, you know, uh, a good number of, of suits were brought, you know, challenging this rule or that rule or defending tickets or the like. Uh, and the, the courts, and, and not to a court, not to a judge, because, you know, they all have their own minds. But um, largely, the courts embraced the COVID narrative the government had provided and, and insisted that everything was fine. And, and one of the phenomena that happened in some of those cases was that, that judges, and this happened especially in family law cases where there is a dispute between parents about whether a child was gonna be vaccinated or not. One of the things that some of these courts did was take judicial notice of the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. Now, judicial notice is a, is a shortcut to finding facts without evidence. The general rule, of course, is that any fact you find in a courtroom has to be proven with evidence. You're not allowed to go outside the courtroom, read the newspaper, look at the sky and see what's going on and decide what the fact is. 
No, no, you're strained to the four walls of the courtroom to what you hear from witnesses. But judicial notice is a shortcut. You can take judicial notice and conclude certain facts if they're so notorious that no one would dispute them, or you can, or you can, you can confirm them with, with sources of indisputable accuracy. But in these cases, the safety and efficacy of the vaccine was the matter in issue. And judicial notice is not intended to apply to the issue in the case. And yet some judges said, well, I'm just going to take judicial notice of the fact that for, you know, for this child or for children in general, the vaccine is safe and effective and, and away we go. Another one of your fables, and, and this one I don't think will surprise people necessarily, that uh, the fable is that judges are impartial, and you point out that they're not uh, in many cases. Well, I, so, so I think they try to be, and I, it's not that they never are. It's just that we can see examples where you really have to wonder about that, about that sort of cultural myth that we insist on that they are. So the example that I talk about is, is, is Chief Justice Wagner talking about the convoy. Mm-hmm. After the convoy, uh, the Chief Justice gave an interview to Le Devoir, where he talked about the convoy, basically condemned them, and suggested that it you know, had to be put down by force. Now, that's a perfectly fine opinion if you're just a citizen. But you're the Chief Justice of the whole system. And there were challenges, of course, to be brought to the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And, and, and those challenges have now been heard, but not decided at the, at the federal court. And they could very easily end up in front of the Supreme Court. And yet the Chief Justice had already expressed his view about the nature of the protest, whether it was right or wrong, what should have been done about it. And so if you were a person involved in that protest, you, you would be justified in thinking, well, am I really going to get a fair shake if this judge is sitting on the case? He's already told me what he thinks. And that, that, that conflicts with the, the whole idea of being a, a, an unbiased adjudicator with a blank slate who will only base conclusions upon what you hear in the court. Yeah, and I think that's a fair distinction. I, I mean, everyone has a bias. Journalists have bias. Judges have bias. And, and anyone who says that bias does not exist in them or in others, I, I think, is delusional. And I think they probably have a view that their position is neutral and everyone else is biased. But, uh, but in reality, any position that we expect someone to be imbi- unbiased and or impartial in is really a question of how good they are at separating their personal bias from their their work. And, and I would agree with you. That's what a judge is supposed to do. You cannot separate judges from the context in which they live as human beings. You know, for example, during COVID, judges were living under the same laws that we were, the same restrictions that we were. And uh, some of them would have had a variety of opinions on that. Some of them would have been fine. I mean, you had judges that were very vigilant about enforcing mask mandates in their courtrooms. And, you know, you then you ask the question of, well, if you're going in there to fight against mask mandates, how effectively are you going to be able to do it? Uh, another one, uh, I think it was one of the bail judges that Tamara Leach had, who was discussing the convoy and referred to Ottawa as my city and my community. And again, not inaccurate. A judge in Ottawa who lives in Ottawa is not breaking news, but it's a little thing that just sort of indicates how much are you bringing in your life and your experience and your values rather than just the law. And I, I think there are very subtle ways in which this is probably happening. Yes, no, I think you put your finger on it though. So part of the, part of the bad trend here, I think, is that the idea of neutrality is instead of instead of neutrality being equivalent to a blank slate 
as in I have no, I'm going to do my very best to have no preconceived notions about this. Yes, I'm a human being. I live in a particular context. I'm going to have certain biases like everybody does. But my role as a judge is to go in and try and ignore those and, and, and start from scratch. But more and more, there seems to be a trend, I think, that new, to give neutrality content, to give a particular view the, 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 the credential of being neutral. And mm -hmm. by that, I mean the, the progressivism is becoming the neutral view. At his first press conference, uh, the Chief Justice, as Chief, the first press conference as Chief Justice, a reporter asked him whether or not he agreed that the Supreme Court was the most progressive court in the world. And the Chief Justice agreed with, with some pride. Now, if you are suggesting that it's a good thing that your court is a progressive court, doesn't that mean that right off the bat you are now not neutral? unless you view progressivism as neutral. And that's what I'm, that's what I mean. Yeah. And I, I think this is the problem. And what we've seen here is not just people that are, you know, progressive outside the courtroom. And then when they sit down, it, it goes to the bare bones of, of what the constitution says and what the law says, as we've talked about. And, and I think this brings us to one of your other fables, which was the, uh, the constitution means what it says. There are situations in which there is ambiguity in the law, and you could have people that in good faith debate it and discuss it. What did they mean with this? There are other cases where, and you mentioned the Camo case in particular, which uh, for those who uh, don't recall is the guy who lived in New Brunswick and wanted to commit the egregious infraction of bringing a case of beer across the Quebec-New Brunswick border. And the Constitution in this case uh, says that there is to be no restriction on interprovincial trade. And this is, a, a, again, of all the things that we cannot necessarily entirely understand or discern, this one is literally in black and white in ink. And yet the court finds it's not actually there. Yeah, this is one of the great things about this case. You know, bad great things is that, as you say, a lot of parts of the constitution, like many statutes, are ambiguous. You know, they're pretty vague, you have to fill in the gaps and so on. This particular section, as you allude to, is actually pretty clear. It says this in black and white, and yet still the Supreme Court finds a way to say, well, you know, that's not really what it means. What it means is this, so as to allow these provincial programs, the, the, the monopoly provided to the alcohol industry in New, in New Brunswick, for example, in the case that, you're talk that we're talking about, can continue so as to ignore the words of the constitution and, uh, and allow the regulatory state to carry on in spite of the statements of the contrary. The thing about this case, I, I remember when it came up and I, I started following it at some point in the, you know, I don't know, eight or nine years it was going on. And I, I recall it being a very wonky thing because interprovincial trade is not an issue that most people think affects them. If you live in one of these, you know, uh, towns or cities near the border, like Mr. Camo did, you're obviously more well-versed in this. And I went to a conference that uh, the CCF put on in Ottawa and I said, I'm going to report on it. And I, you know, did all this great coverage. And I think like, I don't know, 42 people, uh, you know, followed it or anything like that. But, but I'm of the view that if the Supreme Court can't get the stuff this small right of whether you have a right to buy beer in Quebec and drink it in New Brunswick. Uh, they're certainly not going to get the big stuff right that involves our fundamental freedoms. 
Well, yeah. So, but this small thing, uh, at least through the eyes of the Supreme Court, the, the beer aspect is small. The, yeah, the, the underlying small, but, concept but, 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 is large. I agree. The concept is large. I mean, the, one of the things that the Supreme Court seems to be concerned have been concerned about is that if we, you know, if they say that the Constitution prevents this from happening, then you know, what are the implications for the administrative state? You know, all these various programs and restrictions and rules about everything under the sun are those all in jeopardy? And you know, do we have to defend and protect the administrative state from this constitutional provision so as not to you know let the world collapse? You know, let's just observe this: the administrative state, this 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 nanny state that we have now, is not provided for in the constitution. This this large mechanism, multi-layered bureaucracy that we have, is not provided for in the constitution. Now, the constitution doesn't prohibited exactly mm -hmm. but it doesn't provide for it either it's been a an evolutionary choice over a long period of time and yet it has if you read this decision in a particular way it has become if you like a constitutional ideal that's higher than the words of the document itself in in the in the face of words that suggest actually the state can't sh and shouldn't do this the supreme court said well we can't we can't have that. Therefore, the words don't mean what they appear to mean. Let me ask you, though, do you believe that the courts should or shouldn't think of and evaluate the consequences of its decisions? I mean, should it be looking at things as a moment in time? This is what the law says. Figuring out the details is not our problem. Or do you think courts should, in an ideal world, have to think about the eventualities of what will come from their decisions? Well, consequences are a legitimate part of judicial reasoning. I mean, it's part of figuring out what the words are supposed to mean, what the words were intended to mean. And, and whenever you have ambiguity in a, in a provision, the courts do have to go through this process of, of, of deciding, you know, what the words are supposed to mean and put them into context. But that's not an, a, a, an unlimited license just to make stuff up. I mean, there's a, there's a process, a set of principles that are supposed to apply to this, to this, this, um, exercise of of interpretation it's that the, the, there are rules of statutory interpretation now i've got no problem when a court says you know here here are our principles of interpretation as set out in precedence mm -hmm. and I, i'm going to apply this principle and that principle here's what we get and so you could have disagreement i mean there are lots of situations in which you have a provision that's vague enough so that you could come to different conclusions legitimately by applying these principles okay so no no problem but then there are those situations where well you're just going to throw the principles out the window and say well because of the consequences of this interpretation we're not going to do that now now you're now you're legislating from the bench now you're you know doing policy instead of interpretation and uh and, and of course all of this is 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 opinion but my opinion is that that's the kind of process that they went through in the in the como case yeah, and, and it's interesting to compare the court's own decisions against its own decisions. I, I mean, assisted suicide is probably one of the more brazen examples. I mean, not even to weigh in on the policy itself, where the Supreme Court can basically assess the same question twice 
and come up with radically different uh, responses to that. Uh, you know, once in the Rodriguez case and then more recently in Carter. And then, but even on a shorter time frame, I mean, healthcare is one that came up recently where in uh, Quebec, the Shaoli case, the Supreme Court of Canada says basically, yes, you have a right to private access to healthcare. And then uh, in British Columbia, you have uh, courts going a very different direction on this. I mean, you know, years and years of litigation and ultimately uh, saying, yeah, Shaoli doesn't apply here. So two different provinces, two different laws. Yeah, two different laws and two different two different charters, in fact. Mm -hmm. So Quebec has its own provincial charter, not a part of the Constitution, mm -hmm. but nevertheless was the basis for the truly a decision. But all of this, I think, reveals a, a, a larger truth, if you like, which, which is that, you know, what one of these cultural fables that we're talking about with respect to the legal system is that legal decisions are uh, are arrived at through a logical reasoning process and the the counter view it, it, I, I prefer to use the word skeptical and cynical but nevertheless the, <laughs> the, the, the the skeptical view is that actually we're talking about something else and that something else is really could be seen from a if you like an anthropological point of view which is the law and and the system is a is a if you like, is a social ritual, an institutional ritual. It's political language to provide legitimacy to political decisions. And as long as we go through the ritual of the court process and, and reasoning, and we have a statute and everybody does the job that they're assigned to do, then it doesn't matter what the outcome is because we've given, the, we've, we've given its ritualistic approval and therefore everything is fine. And that's nothing to do with the content. So it's, 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 the uh, it's a it's an elaborate set of institutional marks to provide cultural legitimacy to to a political outcome. Now I've plucked out a few of the fables that stood out to me, but I'll, I'll let you uh, pick your favorite here. Perhaps the one that you feel is the most misunderstood uh, that we haven't touched on. Well, uh, <laughs> that that the the one one of the ones. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Um, I'm going to have to uh, shut up. See, you're phone. getting your Supreme Court appointment. <laughs> sure. So, uh, just, excuse me. All right. <laughs> this is the great thing about live uh, about live media, folks. We'll get uh, Bruce back on in a couple of moments here. But I, I just want to kind of reference one uh, aspect here that he brings up, which I think is quite fascinating, in that there, there tends to be in Canada this sense that the system is just going to work and that it's going to hold government accountable. And oftentimes when courts and parliaments are in tension, which let's be honest, is the whole point of courts. That's why we have them there, because it needs to be a check on legislative power. The problem is, is that you have courts that wish they were legislators uh, and legislatures. And, and that is the, the big difference here. So, for example, when you have the uh, law itself saying, yes, you can uh, have trade that is interprovincial and you can bring trade from uh, one, uh, you know, one province into the other, uh, that is supposed to be, but again, it's, they become policymakers and that's the, the issue here. I think uh, we have uh, Bruce back. Uh, Bruce, was that your uh, appointment call from the prime minister? Are you on the bench? <laughs> I didn't open it. I didn't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out afterwards. But, but you asked about, about the, uh, these other fables. Mm -hmm. And so let's go to the one that, that, that I think people have internalized most deeply without really even thinking about it, which is this idea that justice is blind. 
I mean, and you can just even see it in the statues. If you look at the statues of, Ju of Lady Justice, often she has a blindfold on mm -hmm. and she has scales. And the whole idea is that people are going to be uh, assessed and the law is going to be applied to them without regard to who they are. Their personal circumstances are irrelevant. Everything is, is, is again, neutral in the sense of identity. Your identity doesn't matter. And, you know, that idea, as much as any other idea, is going by the wayside. Uh, we had a, and this is not the only one, but we had a, a, a decision of the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal uh, last fall that basically came out and said in black and white, no, no, white people can't claim discrimination. In other words, white people can be discriminated against. In other words, we have now a regime of the law that says different rules apply depending upon your race or your gender or your sex or your disability or your religion. That's the territory we're now entering into. And you can see this arising in various different contexts under the human rights codes of the, of the provinces, under the equality provision of the charter, uh, under the support programs that are promulgated by a government. Under well, look, look at indigenous sentencing guidelines indigenous that, that your sentencing in criminal uh, convict, like cases of criminal conviction should be laxer because you are indigenous. Well, not as a matter of course, but the Supreme Court has said, but, but certainly there is a process yes. for differentiating the punishment depending upon the group that you belong to and the, you know, the experience that that group identity has provided. And so, yes, if it, you, we, we can no longer proceed safe in the assumption that we're going to be treated exquisitely equally, regardless of the person that we are. The uh, essay is fantastic. And I, again, it, it, I think, identifies a number of the problems. But let's try to end on a bit more of a forward-looking note, if we can, here. And, and the question that I sort of envisioned coming into this was, can it be saved and what would need to happen? For the Canadian legal order to be saved, well, I think the, the the simple answer would be to to return to this very fundamental idea of the separation of powers, and that, that, that the people in the system would embrace it as as well. We, to be fair, that idea has been eroding for a long time, a long time. This is not just the you know past few years. This has been on the road for a long time. But if if we were go, to go back to that, because after all, separation of powers, the idea here is this, legislatures pass rules. The executive uh, enforces those rules, carries those, those, those rules out, and the courts apply the rules to particular cases. And that is the rule of law because it protects us from the concentration of power in any one person or branch of the state. If we have that, then we're all safe. If we don't have that, then you're you're liable to be subject to the arbitrary preferences of, of, of one of these persons or, or or agencies. And that's not what we want. But if if the people involved in the system would embrace that idea again afresh and say, all right, we each of these branches have a different role and, and the three shall never mix, never meet. But that's going to be a very difficult ask because the administrative state is based upon the mixing. It's based upon the delegation of powers to it so that it can make all the rules and the regulations and the directives and the orders and the, and the policies and so on. We've entered into a different era of government. The, uh, the, the ideas like separation of powers 
is, is still talked about, it's still praised, but it's not applied nearly as seriously as it ought to be. The piece in C2C Journal, Legal Canons and Social Fables, The Law in Canada Has Never Been Perfect, But Now It Is Losing Its Way. And I think uh, if uh, we put that up on the screen there, people will be able to see it for themselves. Uh, do go and read it at c2cjournal.ca. Uh, Bruce Party, the Executive Director of Rights Probe, always good to talk to you. Uh, hopefully you'll come back on once you're uh, on, the just, on the Supreme Court uh, there, Bruce. But thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Always good to talk to you. All right. Always good to talk to you as well. Thank you for that. And uh, thanks again to those of you I uh, had the chance to chat with last night. I also had the chance to speak to Jordan Peterson, who told us uh, how big a fan he is of the work True North is doing. So I thank Jordan Peterson for that. We'll have to get him on the show. I interviewed him uh, several years ago on my old show that I did before here. And uh, admittedly, he has uh, gotten like continued to get more and more and more uh, famous and important since then. Uh, I went up like a little bit since then but he he shot like way up uh but it was uh, still nonetheless great to chat with him and his lovely wife again so uh all of you we will talk to you next week with more of canada's most irreverent talk show and i was hoping to have a promo to play for you now i don't have a promo but we'll uh, post something over the weekend uh we have a great interview coming up next week a full hour sit down with tamara leach in which she finally breaks her silence free of some of the really restrictive bail conditions that were preventing her from speaking out and have made it uh, difficult to actually have a, a sit down with her in the past. So we will have that for you next week. Stay tuned for that. Have a good weekend, everyone. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.